We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. Kind of alluded to this, I think, a few times now, but this narrative is so, it's really got its blinders on where it's really focused on this one thing it wants to say, or preach, really. And it doesn't necessarily allow for other viewpoints to enter in and have a discussion. So there might be something that's kind of introduced on the side, but then it gets quickly stamped out. Nick Brick brings up points, like really good points, about how the dwarves were treated by the old regime, and then he gets murdered. <laughs> Which kind of maybe proves his point a little bit, but the narrative doesn't even discuss that. While we're back on, on Nickabrick, there's something I, I'd forgotten to bring up earlier. After Nickabrick has been murdered, Caspian says, I am sorry for Nickabrick, though he hated me from the mo- first moment he saw me. He had gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. If we had won quickly, he might have become a good dwarf in the days of peace. I don't know which of us killed him. I'm glad of that. So it's so weird because we're given Nickabrick as this antagonist the whole time and he gets murdered. And then it's like the understanding that, yeah, Nickabrick was the way he was because of the situation. Like maybe they could have like gone into this more with him being alive, but instead it's like a posthumous realization. I know. It's I, remember what I was saying last time about how C.S. Lewis has this bad, bad habit of adding these like addendums at the last minute. <laughs> this is exactly what I mean. The narrative decides, oh, actually, this is something interesting and we should address it. But at this point, it's just too late. He's dead. Indeed. There's no chance to actually work with Nickabrick. Because that, that would have been interesting if Caspian actually had to work with Nickabrick and develop a relationship and really, like, convince him to come to his side. Maybe they could have learned from each other a little bit, and maybe they could have learned to be more respectful about each other. And, you know, Nickabrick, he is the super racist one in this book. He has a thing against, like, dwarves who breed with humans, and he definitely hates humans in general. So it would have been cool to see him rehabilitate that kind of perspective. But then Caspian to also acknowledge, hey, people have done you a lot of wrong. And like, I understand why you feel the way you do. Let's work together to sort of start healing those scars. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that like Nickabrick's hatred for people that are, you know, half human, half dwarf or anything else is he feels they've been they've betrayed the native Narnians by trying to like to pass blend in yeah to pass because there's a very interesting detail about how they talk about like they wear like platform shoes or whatever to try to like increase their height and yeah so there's like this very interesting topic of like what it means to pass and what it means to sort of assimilate with you know the quote-unquote enemy but it well it does get resolved and the way it's resolved is just like by murdering Nickabrick because it's kind of it's just inconvenient really to the narrative. Ah, this book. Yep. 
But <laughs> on the upside, this book introduces the best character, I will argue, in the Narnia universe, and that is Reba Cheep. Reba Cheep the mouse. Reba Cheep is the best, and I'm so pumped that we will be seeing him again in the next book. And just like, okay, my Reba Cheep notes are literally, the first one is just Reba Cheep in all caps. Um, we should describe this character for people who don't oh, know yeah. him. Reba Cheep. Okay. He is like basically a mouse musketeer. Yes. But he's so over the top. It's comical because he's so small, but he he's so aggressive and he's always He's like my honor, Zuko. Honor. 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 Honor the honor. 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 Honorary honor. Honor. Honor? And he's always challenging people to duels and threatening to poke people with his little tiny sword if, if they besmirch his honor. And it's just so darn adorable. It is the cutest. And you know what? He's actually pretty effective in the battle at the end because him and his little mouse gang. It's actually kind of horrifying. <laughs> yeah. They're like maiming people. They poke them in the foot. They fall over. And then they just literally stab them to death with these like <laughs> needles, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh my God, this is terrible. But it's so fun. Right. And Reba Sheep is not scared of anyone. And it's great because it, in the end, he his tail has been cut off. And so he, like, petitions Aslan to, like, repair his tail. And he actually debates with Aslan. Like, Aslan's like, you're too proud. Like, don't worry about it. It's just a tail. And then, like, his entire gang of mice are like, we too will cut off our tails in solidarity. Uh, also, I think, yes, here we go. Um, permit me to remind you that a very small size has been bestowed upon us mice. And if we did not guard our dignity, some who weigh worth by inches, would allow themselves very unsuitable pleasantries at our expense. And that's why he wants his freaking tail back. <laughs> In the end, he changes Aslan's mind, and Aslan's like, you have conquered me. You have great hearts. I love that moment. Okay, so this is actually something I want to talk about, because one reason why I hate Aslan so much is that he appears, and everyone is just entranced by him. And to me having read the Bible and, and being very familiar with the stories, if you look at the earlier books, you will see people constantly debating with God. I mean, Jacob literally wrestles an angel, and you have this, this idea of struggling with God, of debating with God, of challenging God even, and having this relationship that's not ad adversarial, but it's not just set in stone that, well, I guess... The Ten Commandments are set in stone. <laughs> but there is wiggle room. There is allowance that you can challenge God and debate with him. Every time Aslan shows up here in these books, everyone just becomes so boring. Oh, his lion's mane. Oh, his breath. Oh, he booped me on the nose. I'm, <laughs> I'm so in love. Take me, Aslan. Actually... This is about Horse and His Boy, so apologies for going back. But there's there's a moment we didn't talk about in Horse and His Boy where Wh Whim? Whim. Yeah, Whim has seen Aslan, and she is so taken by his beauty that she literally says, Lion, please eat me. I'd rather be eaten by you than to live at all. That's not quite what she says. But yes, yeah, she is like... I would rather be eaten by you than a lot of things. No, she literally... Okay, hold on. I need to get my book. 
see if I can find it first. What she, this is literally what she says. Please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you'd like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. She's not being seen saying eaten by oh, anyone else. Yeah. Literally being fed by anybody else. And it's like, that is fucking horrifying. I don't want that blind kind of obedience to anyone. And to me... You know, I, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a religious scholar. So, but my understanding is that it's not about blind obedience. There's a struggle there of working with God and even challenging God when you don't think what he's suggesting is right or fair. And Aslan has not been that until now when Reepicheep has this actual conversation and manages to to convince Aslan, hey, just do him a solid and repair Reepicheep's tail. So it's like, I appreciated that moment. Thank you, Reepicheep, for giving us that moment. And I, want, I do want to say that I think he was completely shafted when they were deciding who was going to observe the duel. So each side can pick three people to stand around the ring, basically to make sure everyone's sticking by the rules or whatever. And Reepicheep offers himself in service of this. And Peter just rejects him. I am always pro Reepicheep getting more anything. <laughs> and I am so, so excited to see him again in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which he is a big part of. Given what I've said about the adventuring that takes place in this story and how bored I am, I'm not looking forward to Voyage of the Dawn Treader because literally the word voyage is in the title. I do think you'll like it more. Because I'm worried. I, they make more stops in interesting places. It's, it's more of a like, I will say like, I don't think there's as much, there is like an overarching plot thread that does follow through the story. But I think it's more about like, they're voyaging on the ship, the Dawn Treader, and they like stop at various islands and all the islands are really different. And there's like, crazy things that happen on the different islands. There's some of, I think, the creepiest moments in all of the Narnia books with some of these islands. I remember really enjoying it, and I think a lot of people agree it's objectively the best Narnia book, so... Okay. I I feel like it has a lot of... It has potential for you to enjoy it. There is, like, some amount of, like, yes, they are sailing on the sea, and you get to hear about them sailing on the sea. But, like, <laughs> they stop on a bunch of different islands and do things. All right, that that is very reassuring to hear. But, but to get back to this book, something I do want to ask you is how does your crush on Ed hold up? It holds up! <laughs> okay. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I feel like we truly got Edmund as the little <laughs> he is in this book. And that's really what jives with me as a human being. Like, he does have, like, a line or two I'm not a big fan of. But for the most part, like, I love him being there and supporting Lucy. I think that is really important to me. He has, the, of course, the great line, which I'm just going to read because I've referenced it so many times. But he says, well, there's just this, said Edmund, speaking quickly and turning a little red. When we first discovered Narnia a year ago, 
or a thousand years ago, whichever it is. It was Lucy who discovered it first, and none of us would believe her. I was the worst of the lot, I know. Yet she was right all along. Wouldn't it be fair to believe her this time? Which is just such a great moment. And he's just so, like, sassy about everything he does. When she then wakes him up later to be like, it's Aslan again, we gotta go. He says, oh, bother it all. I do wish you wouldn't keep on seeing things. <laughs> but I suppose we'll have to wake the others. And so he's just so, like, grumpy and annoyed throughout this entire thing. And, like, you know that if Edmund was in charge of this and not Peter, I feel like this would all go much more smoothly, you know? Like, he knows when to take advice, but he also knows when to, like, be efficient, get done. And I just love that. Unfortunately, he does have one moment of, like, sexism, which I was like, Edmund, please no. Stop it. Get some help. But it's hard to avoid that in these books, and so I must accept it. No, no, no. I, I'm going to I'm gonna challenge you there. You do not have to accept it just because it's in this book. We can rightfully call Ed out for saying sexist remarks. And No, I didn't mean accept it. I just meant that, like, sexism so pervades these books that, like, looking for a character to not have it in these books is impossible. So, like, yeah, at least his one line is retorted. And I really think he's shown so much character growth. I think you get such a, a clear picture of who he is and i love him especially considering that this was actually the second book cs wrote given how much his character actually does develop is pretty remarkable oh and there's this moment with edmund that i want to bring up now at the very end they're having a feast and like there's this loam that like the tree people are eating and Edmund decides to try a piece of it (laughs) and i was like edmund edmund continuing his tradition of eating questionable foods (laughs) character consistency ed you dumb dumb man i love him so much (laughs) but yeah the other thing i want to talk about that i think is a good for us to check back in on is we uh brought up Bacchus. that was a reference that was made in line the witch in the wardrobe and we talked a lot in that book about like just references being dropped and not utilized and and Bacchus actually shows up here and does things and so i wanted to one talk about that and then two chat a little bit about the other references i think are being made in this book but i know you are not a fan of the bacchus section i'm also not a fan of the bacchus section yes i did not like bacchus because as you said earlier the pemphasis really don't have much impact on the sort of main plot of Caspian becoming king. And Bacchus has even less importance to the overall story. He shows up, and I think there are some, like, implications that he's doing some kind of orgy or something. Oh, yeah. A guide to modern life. Let's have an orgy. When he first shows up, because, like, the girls talk about how they wouldn't want to be alone with him which just very strange. But if you were to look at him as a character, I guess my ish, my main issue is like, it literally could have been anyone doing this. Like what made it unique to Bacchus? He doesn't really have a chance to talk. I'm not sure if he even has any spoken lines in this book. Somebody fact check uh, me on that. I think he may- maybe speaks once, but yeah. Notwithstanding that, you never really get a chance for him to develop as a character. It 
basically operates again as a name drop that in some ways it's even worse than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because it's just like you're making this random reference and he's playing a part in the story, but he's not playing a part that's unique to the character of Bacchus as a Greek god. It's just dumb. It's just really dumb. I guess he, he helps with the orgy at the beginning when he's first introduced, and then the orgy that, the sort of PG version of an orgy that happens at the end of the book. But other than that, it's just like, he's not relevant. Yeah, and it's like, so the, I think the first people to arrive during Aslan's whole waking the everyone up is um, Bacchus and Selenus. Has less to do, yeah. <laughs> and they just kind of uh, have a little romp. It, like, literally, Bacchus's one line is he asks, is it a romp, Aslan? <laughs> You're right. They have a romp, and then they go and wake everyone up, and then they trample people. Sounds like you guys are having a great party. Why wasn't I invited? But it's like, yeah, did it did it need to be Bacchus as part of this romp? Is that, like, crucial and important? I mean, I guess he is, like, in terms of being a god, he is kind of the god of romping. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... For a kid reading this, how is that relevant? You could have just had, like, the trees waking up and having a romp, and, like, it doesn't really make a difference. And again, it's, as you were saying for the line, the witch in the wardrobe, of having these, introducing these characters that in Greek mythology were, <laughs> like, in the case of the fun, was, like, a sexual predator. That's the background of fawns in Greek mythology. And so you introduce Bacchus... And the girls seem to allude to this, that, like, you wouldn't want to be alone with this guy. And so, like, Sia seems to be aware of that, but it that doesn't get addressed at all, you know? Yeah. And then I think the whole, I mean, the whole scene that follows of them waking everything up is just kind of a, like, a landmine of, like, both weird references that don't fit and also just like cs again inserting his anti-school agenda <laughs> and i i did want to say i had said there were no more animal transformations except for the one and i was wrong because aslan does turn little schoolboys into pigs i don't get that either because it's like this doesn't make any sense even just looking at this one book that narratively and thematically makes no sense to transform the boys into pigs because he nonetheless offers the Telmarines at the end the option to, like, you can either stay in this new regime or you can leave and go back to your original home. But, like, these boys, I guess they're jerks to their teacher, but that's it? They're not given a chance to, like, make a decision of themselves. I guess they just remain pigs and not, like, talking pigs. I, I think kind of like Rabidash's situation they won't be able to talk. So they are just dumb pigs now. I mean, hopefully they untransform and this was just like teaching a lesson, but it's still like not great. Rabidash at least did a lot of bad stuff. <laughs> These boys were just like little jerks. Like that's what little boys are. Boys are so Right. And it, and it just puts me in mind of like, you know, if you compare this to like what Edmund did, in the first yeah. book, it's like the structure of power and punishment. Uh, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense. What is going on here, CS? What are you doing here? It's so inconsistent to the way justice is implemented in this book. 
Indeed. And then I think um, I also wanted to touch on, because I'm sure people are like, yo, so this is a book in which the uncle kills the dad, takes the throne. So it's Hamlet. Definitely it's Hamlet. Hamlet. It's all inspired by Hamlet Morgan. Hi, I'm Chiwetelle Ejiofor. And I'm Donald Glover. And we'll be playing Lion King or Hamlet. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to go on my full Hamlet rant. But, like, basically, there are a lot of, like, medieval and renaissance renaissance stories about, like, uncles being bad. It's a common trope. I think that's very deliberately being evoked. And then I'm sure that Hamlet is one of the references being brought out. I also think there's a certain amount of this. And I think that will continue on a little bit into the next book that is also somewhat reminiscent of Arthurian legend. You know, the true king kind of coming back to create another golden age and also there's moments with Macbeth I think we see at the end with like the trees coming to trample everyone I was like ah yes what if the trees in Macbeth were actual trees so I think it's interesting I was really picking up on all of those notes this time the trees like you know this is something we haven't really talked about too much yet but like how much is C.S. Lewis just stealing from J.R.R. Tolkien we have the Ents in this book, right? We have the magical rings in The Magician's Nephew. We have even the senses of, like, societies falling into corruption and decaying. That's definitely present throughout Lord of the Rings and definitely the Silmarillion. I mean, okay, I will defend. So dryads and naiads are, like, things, in mythology. But just the idea of the trees coming in to save the day, you know, uh, I'm just saying, C.S. Lewis, maybe he's a hack. Maybe he just steals all of his ideas from better writers. I don't know. I'm just asking the hard questions here, okay? I just think that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, obviously, as, like, buds and working in, like, the same academic community and all of that, they're drawing a lot on the same stockpile of references. And I'm not saying that C.S. Lewis isn't also making references to Lord of the Rings. I mean, he probably is, but like, I feel like it's more that they're both drawing from the same source than that there's any particular correlation between the two, you know? How do you think C.S. Lewis felt knowing that his best friend was a better writer than him? Okay. <laughs> I I haven't reread Lord of the Rings in years, but I thought we agreed that like Tolkien is a better builder of worlds and builder of whatever, but that technically C.S. Lewis is a better writer. When I say writer, I'm encompassing all the elements of writing, not just being able to describe scenery, where I think C.S. Lewis is definitely, that's his strong suit, but in terms of also storytelling, world building, developing themes i mean i'm sure at some point we're gonna be re reading the lord of the rings books but i i'm just gonna put it on the record that i think jrr tolkien is so much better at telling a story <laughs> than c.s lewis is i think tolkien is just a meticulous human being you know what i mean like i get that sense not only from like his works but also from his like scholarship i've read his like annotations of his translation of beowulf and like he he went in like he's <laughs> meticulous it's really amazing and like very goal worthy and 
I very much admire him. I haven't read as much of C.S. Lewis's scholarship. The one I did read, I like strongly disagreed with. So that's probably coloring my opinion right now. But like, I think that they're just such different, they operate so differently. And I, I do wonder, like Clive and, and Tolkien had like, you know, a falling out at some point. And like, we're not friends anymore. I don't know how much the success of their respective fictional works played into it. I know religion was probably an element, but like, I do feel a little bad because like, I know Tolkien hated Chronicles of Narnia and was like upfront with Clive about that, which is valid. It's okay to dislike a work, but like, you know, I feel bad for Clive. I don't. I don't know. I think Clive really supported Tolkien in his fictional works. And like, Tolkien was just like, it trash. I don't like. And like, poor Clive. Poor Clive. Well, if you don't want to be called trash, write better stories. I do want to make the notes that we've been talking now about J.R.R. and C.S., their their buddy-buddy relationship now, I don't know, five, ten, eight hundred minutes now. <laughs> and I think that's just testament to how really boring this book is. There's really nothing to this book that's interesting to me. <laughs> In a bigger sense of, like, there are moments, but there's no, like, big overarching thing. Not like The Magician's Nephew, where I can walk away from this thinking, oh, that's really interesting. That's going to be something I'm going to really ruminate on for the rest of the time. I mean, even Horse and His Boy had the overarching theme of racism for us to comment on. <laughs> yeah. I really do think there's so many interesting small moments or concepts brought up, but like you said, there's not enough for us to really grapple with them because they're just kind of dropped in. Like, I mean, even the moment with like the um, Miraz's telemarine lieutenants where they plot to like betray him and then blame it on the Narnians. And like, there's like game of Thrones intrigue going on, but it happens for two seconds and then it doesn't matter anymore. It is so unsatisfying. Miraz is knocked over. His lieutenants or generals or whatever jump in, stab him. Morass doesn't even have, like, any last words. It's just like, oh, Morass is now dead. I guess that's that. There is, um... Since we're being so scattershot, and I feel like it's really appropriate for this book, There, there is one moment that, like, that stood out to me where, where Trump can finally sees Aslan... Uh, yes! And Aslan tells Trumpkin to approach, and then Aslan turns into Mama Cat, grabs Trumpkin, throws him in the air. Trumpkin is horrified by everything that's happening. And then Aslan asks a question that probably is only interesting to me. He asks, shall we be friends? And this, in my notes, got me on a whole rant about the evolution of how God is perceived in Christianity because only in like the last hundred years or so has this idea of God being your friend or having a personal relationship with God or Jesus Christ manifested itself. Before then, God was like a really distant figure. And you saw that sort of in early Christianity where there was this, especially Catholicism, Catholicism, Catholicism where there's this hierarchy of like 
there was God, and then there are the saints, or the angels, then the saints, and then, you know, you get to the Pope, and the cardinals, and bishops, and the priests. Even the act of, like, confessing to God, that was done through this intermediary of the priest, right? And so God was always a distant figure. And if you look at like, I'm sorry, this is turning into a whole tangent. That sort of gradually shifted over the centuries as the idea of who God is became more humanized and more personified. And it's only in recent times that like, it's really been humanized to the extent like God is, is your buddy, God is your pal kind of thing. And I, I'm just curious, like, is Aslan turning into a kitty for a second here? Is that tapping into that mindset of Jesus is a friend of mine kind of thinking? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's an interesting aspect to Aslan's character throughout the books where, like, I mean, I guess it's appropriate since he's God, but he is many things. And there's the idea of him like being terrible while also beautiful and all of those elements. I wish I, what I wanted to find and, and see if we could have a comparison of is like, you know, how Aslan dealt with like native Narnians versus the kids. And I'm not sure we really like see enough of that to be able to make judgment calls. Like I was wondering if he's more lion-like with the native Narnians, but I don't, I don't think that's actually a thing. I mean, I guess it's interesting just the difference between how he deals with Susan versus Trumpkin. But it's also a difference of, like, Trumpkin has never believed in Aslan. And Susan has, and she falters. But, like, it's interesting the question that he asks a question to both of them. And the question he asks to Susan is, are you brave again? Which, the way he tries to make her brave again is by breathing on her. And like, we've talked about this before about lion's breath and how it smells good and whatever. But it's just, (laughs) I do like the image of like, of like going up to a person and being like, hey, are you scared? I'll help you out. (sighs) 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 There you go. You're cured now of your fear. (laughs) Yep. It's a real power move by Aslan. I feel like we're we're basically wrapping up at this point. But, yeah, I think so. But I I want to reference my favorite line from this book. It's after after Morass has been killed and like everything's descending into chaos and all the armies are getting ready to fight. <laughs> apparently, Reapacheep jumps in and is like charging into battle, and Peter says. Quote, come back, Reaper Cheap, you little ass. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Peter's a jerk. It's such a funny moment of somebody yelling at a mouse to get back, you little ass. <laughs> I think I'm going to keep that one in. I know I've been censoring things up to this point, but it's just like, it's in the book, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think ass is so bad, so. Ass is is not so bad. Oh, my. <laughs> I feel so tempted to make a joke here, but I'm I'm going to keep it yeah, relatively Yeah, let's not. Let's not. <laughs> I guess, do we want to end with the the end of this book with the, like, revelation that the Telemarines are from our world and they were, like, pirates who, like, 
raped the native woman. And... Oh my god, yes, yes, we can talk about how <laughs> oh, this this book is such a joke. It's really just has the wildest turns in it. But I was like, wait, does this mean like is Caspian? I'm not sure where this island is that they come from in our world is supposed to be. I've read that it's supposed to be somewhere in the South Pacific, but I, I don't know how people are pulling that information. Right. In which case, the Telebarines are... Why couldn't the 11-year-old get into the pirate movie? Why? It was rated R. <laughs> I mean, obviously, like, originally pirates that raped native women on an island that they got shipwrecked on and then stumbled through a hole to another world. But I was like, Caspian, not white. So it's said in the book that it's six couples that end up going from this island to the world of Narnia. I don't know if they then also, like, breeded with their own river gods or whatever. I don't know. Or the, I guess the Archenlandians or the color men or someone. The book does not say explicitly. It just says that they're pirates. The point is I'm headcanoning that Caspian is not white. I think that makes sense given just the the geography of where they're supposed to be. It's a very convoluted way to like make Caspian like legitimate on the throne. And I wish that... Instead, Clive could have just been like, you know, these are like, I don't understand why there had to be the thing about like our world and them coming from our world. I was actually thinking about this. Like, what rights does Caspian have to the throne more than anyone else? You know, Morass, by all this logic, he's also a son of Adam. And then this idea of like, well, what's to stop Caspian from making the same mistakes or doing the same things and subjugating the Narnians, just like his ancestors did. It's just dumb. And there's even a point at the end of the book where Aslan asks him, hey, are you ready to rule? And I think Caspian literally says, no, I'm not. I'm just a kid. And Aslan responds, good. That means you're actually ready. And it's like, what? Yeah, there's no critical discussion of the monarchy. And whether that's a good thing, period. The system they have set up of who is allowed to rule. Weirdly enough, like, obviously, at this point in England, like, the queen is not an actual political figure. You know, they've got the prime minister and parliament and all of that. Weirdly, no discussion of potentially having, like, a parliament to, like, help support him. There's really, this book is not critically examining those issues. And, yeah, the issue of the fact that Caspian's entire history is you know his ancestors were first rapist pirates and then genocidal conquerors <laughs> he's allowed to be a good person like good people can come from bad people like you know what there's no black and white etc cetera, etc cetera. caspian seems like he's okay maybe who knows but like somehow because he's human and he's descended from humans that came from earth that is more of a thing to validate his right to rule than those other elements are to invalidate it. It put me in mind of like the idea of reform, of reforming a system. Like sometimes it makes sense to have somebody who is operating inside that system to to correct the system. But sometimes 
trusting the person who has subjugated you for a millennium, trusting someone from that group to... It, it puts me in mind of like, no, no, no. We don't need anyone else taking control. We can fix it. We got this. Like, it would have been cool to see a dwarf be like, you know what, actually? Maybe a dwarf should be king. Or maybe a freaking badger should be king. Because honey badgers don't take <laughs> I can't think of anyone better to, to run a country than a badger. And I think that's a great place to end our discussion of this book. <laughs> All right. So, well, the next book is Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You you reassured me about it. So now I'm a little excited about it. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I do think that this is potentially going to be one you like. There is a there is a meal on the line here. There is a meal. I think you'll like it. All right. The stakes have never been higher. I also think it has the best ending of any Narnia book. Are you, I mean, Magician's Nephew was a pretty damn fine Damn ending. fine woman. Damn fine ending. I don't remember like the actual closing line, so I'm not gambling on that. I mean, like, the way it ends, I think, is the most fulfilling. Well, only one way to find out, so until next Excited. week. Excited? Yes. Hasta la vista. Reap a cheap out. Shake, shake, shake.